Hi, this is Chris Costello, and I've teamed up with Michael Senoff to bring you the world's best health-related interviews. So if you know anyone struggling with their weight, with cancer, diabetes, ADHD, autism, heart disease, or other health issues, send them over to Michael Senoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. We are talking today to Dr. Green, who is just a fantastic pediatrician, fantastic educator about how to raise healthy, happy kids. You can check out his website at drgreen, that's with an E, dot com. Dr. Green, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Chris. Wonderful to be with you today. The website, interestingly, was regarded by the AMA as the pioneer, the first physician website. It started originally back just a way to answer questions for the families of my practice. But we started getting questions from people all over the planet. There's a doctor online answering questions. And so we're still plugging away as a public service trying to get parents real answers to their questions about kids. And, you know, one of the things that's come up on the radar screen lately is this problem of obesity in our country. And First Lady Obama is talking a lot about it. You know, what is your take on what is going on with kids in our country with obesity and really around the world? Well, first of all, obesity is a real problem. And it's not just a cosmetic problem that kids are a little overweight. It's already impacting their health in a major, major way. When I started in pediatrics, it was really uncommon to see a child with high blood pressure, but that was a condition of middle age, or with blood sugars that were out of whack. That was a condition of the elderly, or with cholesterol numbers that were abnormal. That was, again, something you would see in middle age, or a waist size over 38 inches or 40 inches in a kid. But today, two-thirds of America's high school students already have at least one of those middle age conditions. It changed very rapidly, and it's a metabolic ticking time bomb. Well, I think, oddly enough, the biggest cause is different than what most people are thinking about. Most of the efforts you see are about changing our food in schools, and I think that's a really good thing, and changing kids' meals that are available in restaurants, getting more physical activity. I think those are really good things. But I think the biggest cause is baby food. Baby food is a recent shared myth. It used to be for all of human history, up until, including when my dad was born, that babies ate pretty much what the family ate just matched up. And it wasn't until when I was born, almost every baby in the U.S. got jarred baby food. Right. It was a processed flavor that was set you on a separate course differently from the rest of the family. It fed into this kid's meal process approach to life. But the first generation turned out reasonably well from that. But when this overweight, poorly programmed generation grew up and had kids, those kids were exposed to all that in the uterus and set them on the wrong course. So let me explain about taste. Most people still think that it just happens then, whether you like broccoli or don't like broccoli, or it's genetic, whether you like broccoli or don't like broccoli. But the reality is it is hardwired, it is programmed, but it happens in the first 34 months of life. It's not something that we come with out of the gate. But one of my heroes was a guy named Conrad Lorenz. And he did studying of early learning in animals. And he came up with this idea. He actually won the Nobel Prize for it, an idea called imprinting. And he studied it in geese first. And he's the guy who proved that the very first moving object that a little baby goose sees, the gosling sees when the shell hatches open, they'll get this rush of endorphins and they will feel attached to it. And when it moves away, the endorphin levels will fall and they'll start trying to follow after it. And endorphin levels will go back up and they will imprint on that first moving object and they will fall in love with it. They'll follow it for the rest of their lives. They'll imitate it. When they grow up, they will continue this sort of lifelong imprint 
focusing on that first moving object. And it's an incredibly good adaptive mechanism. It helps them connect with their mom in the right way. It's very protective, but it can be tricked. If the first moving object they see is a toy train, then they will imprint on the toy train, and they'll follow that around. And if you reintroduce mom and she squawks at them and tries to get their attention, they will ignore the mother that they really need and follow the toy train, and they'll make toy train noises. And when they grow up, they'll try to choose a life partner. They'll pick a toy train which does not work out well, and geese uh, made for life. And what's happened in the U.S., we've learned in the last several years that kids learn their food preferences, the flavors they like, the textures they like, the sources of food, the amount they want to eat. All of that is learned by imprinting. And we've imprinted kids inadvertently early on on too much food, processed food from the wrong sources. So as a parent, how do you navigate in that kind of environment? Two pieces of good news. One, it's not instant. Like with goose, it's forgiving. It's many months long. But the other thing, though, the geese will just ignore the things they don't imprint on. But our kids will actively reject the foods that they don't imprint on. There's this thing called neophobia where they actually physically are suspicious of and afraid of new foods after a certain point. And it really hits its peak at about age three, but starts right after they start walking. And it makes sense. You wouldn't want a kid to go pick a berry and eat it when they walk away from parents because it might not be good for them. Or pick a leaf and eat it because it might be poisonous. So we really want to capture that time before the neophobia takes hold. And in a very simple series of steps, you can really easily teach your child to imprint on the good stuff. That's what Feeding Baby Green is all about. It's a 34-month plan, what every month you do. Let me give a few suggestions. In the baby food age, we know that if a child tastes the same flavor six to ten times, they're likely to form an attachment to that flavor. And it's good it's not just one or two or three times. You don't want them to imprint on a piece of Lego or something they pick off from the floor. But it takes on average six to ten times. The sad thing is that 94% of parents up on the flavor before five times. Don't say, oh, she doesn't like these and stop. And only one in two parents in a hundred will actually try something 10 different times. So how many times does it take? Six to 10 at that age. And why do you think parents give up so quickly? They have the idea that there's certain foods we like and certain foods we don't like, when in reality it's a process. We want to teach kids food, teach them nutritional intelligence to recognize and enjoy good it's normal for them to reject it the first time. It's a safety thing. But kids, they'll put anything in their mouth at that age. They'll do it again and again. It could be a rock or a snail or whatever. They're built to sample, but to spit stuff out until they've learned that it's safe. And so sample it, just a one bite every day for a week, and 85% of kids will like it. It's six to ten times. That's a lot of times. That's a lot of times. But it's so much easier then. If you wait till neophobia sets in, it's 89 times. We want to get them early. What do you do with those resistant eaters where it's just, you know, no, no, no all the time? Well, it's really tough. With the babies, it's just you give them one bite and then you move to the next thing. But with older kids, once that neophobia has already set in, it's really tough to change food habits between about age three and about age nine or ten when puberty hormones start stirring. But it can be done. And some of the things that help the most are to have family meals, to just completely refuse the idea of a separate meal for the kids. And to have a general family expectation be you taste everything once, but you don't have to eat any more than one bite of anything. 
it's just low stress because maybe you don't like broccoli yet, but someday if you keep learning that you're likely to. One of our goals is to learn to really like all this stuff. And one of the easiest ways to speed up the process instead of trying it 89 times is to involve kids upstream in the process. You know, most American kids do not like tomatoes. They never got it during the imprinting window. They're like ketchup. They got purees, but they never had a tomato. So most kids don't like it. But if you hand the child a knife and have them slice a tomato, cut a tomato, then they're about twice as likely to enjoy it. And if you actually go outside and pick a tomato with them, they're about twice as likely again. Now, that's still not most kids liking tomatoes, but it's a lot more than would have otherwise. But if the child will plant a tomato and together you watch it grow for a couple months and then pick the tomato, most kids will actually like them. The fastest way to learn to like a new food is to grow something with them. For more interviews with the world's top health and medical experts, go to Michael Senoff's hardtofindseminars.com. In Feeding Baby Green, you talk about what the optimal ways to feed babies are. Can we kind of go over some of those? Sure. Well, one of the things that I very much suggest is during that window between when you start solids and when the neophobia starts, you want to get as many flavors in as you can. So the old idea that many people still hear that you should wait three to five days between different foods, toss that idea out. It has no scientific validity. It's better to feed them new stuff rapidly and real flavors with real spices. A lot of people have also heard you have to wait on things like peanuts or peanut butter or fish or eggs or berries, and you don't have to wait on any of that stuff. There's no evidence at all that delaying foods beyond six months reduces allergies. And in fact, there's evidence suggesting that if you introduce it before nine months, you're less likely to have an allergy. So there are some things I would recommend not giving babies, and those are the things you wouldn't eat when pregnant like raw eggs or raw fish or undercooked eggs or soft cheeses that aren't pasteurized, the things that might have infections or honey that might have infections. But variety, variety, spices, as much of what the family actually eats as possible. I recommend making some of your own baby food, but not like you have to go and do an extra kind of cooking. Just take a couple tablespoons of whatever you're eating and put it in a blender or a baby food mill or a coffee grinder and just make it soft so the baby can eat it. Exact same stuff. Don't have to cook anything different. It's actually easy, really easy. I have a little portable mill I carry around with me, and two turns of the crank, I've made baby food out of whatever I'm eating. Well, a lot I've been thinking about this childhood obesity epidemic and how we can really turn it around. And one of the things that we've learned about it is that much of this happens before they ever have their first bite of solid food. That babies learn by watching adults eat. What we eat in front of them matters that they learn from the flavors that come through breast milk. Most everything mom eats, the flavors will go through breast milk, and then if she eats it 12 times, that will likely make them like it at the first bite. And before they're even born, they have more taste buds than any time later in life. They're swallowing the amniotic fluid that's flavored with the mom's eating, and it sets not only their taste preferences, but also their metabolisms in a way that will help them deal with fat and extra calories down the road. So the real time to attack childhood obesity is during pregnancy. There was this great study that was done. This was one was an animal study. But half of the pregnant moms got a healthy diet during pregnancy. The other half got lots of junk food. And then they followed the kids, the offspring, all the way through the rest of their life into adulthood. And they had the same food available to them. They weren't protected after they were weaned at all. And it's kind of like school in the world today, you know. One mom is careful during pregnancy and nursing, the other one's not, and they all go off to school. And at adulthood, the ones that 
had a healthy experience before they were born were dramatically healthier. They had healthier blood pressure and blood sugar and everything else, a bit because they chose healthier foods on their own, but more than that because their genes had changed. Up to 10 different genes had flipped on and off to help them handle food better. Before they're born, we used to think that kids were just sort of floating around without much going on. They're learning faster, both in their brains and genetically, than any other time in life. They're trying to figure out what their parents are like, what the current food situation is like, a temperature situation, and preparing their bodies, setting all the presets to have a healthy life in this environment. What is going on with the bicephinal A? What does it mean to us? It's also called BPA, and it's one of two artificial estrogens that were invented back in the 1930s. One of them was used a lot in the medicine. It was called CES, and it was given to pregnant women to help prevent miscarriages and cause all kinds of problems. But the other one, BPA, didn't really get used as a medicine because it was so powerful in plastic. It could make plastic hard and shatterproof and transparent. And so it became widely used in plastics, including bottles, baby bottles and food containers, adult water bottles. So a colleague of mine at Stanford was studying estrogens in the lab, trying to figure out where we're getting exposed to so many and why are there so many estrogen-related diseases. And he was studying yeast, and he found estrogen in the yeast and couldn't figure out why or how or what was going on. When it finally dawned on him, it wasn't the yeast at all. It was the flasks that the yeast were growing in. It was the Petri dishes that were leaching estrogen into the broth that then got into the yeast. It was the plastic, and that was BPA. And the question became, are we doing that same experiment with our babies? Because at the time, more than 90% of baby bottles in the U.S. were made from plastic that had BPA in it that was leaching into their baby bottles and getting into them. So now there have been a couple of hundred studies in animals where the only difference is whether they're exposed to this tiny, tiny amount of BPA or not. And what you see when they are are things like earlier puberty, cancer, like breast cancer, prostate cancer. You see changes in behavior, the ADHD-like symptoms, a variety of different things like you might expect from a really tiny dose of estrogen. And the few times that there have been studies, we obviously don't want to do that with kids where you give half of them BPA and not half the other. But when you just measure levels in humans, you find that the ones who have higher levels, the girls are higher risk of ADHD and the boys are higher chance of being feminized and adults have a higher chance of diabetes, and adults have a higher chance of sexual dysfunction, like erectile dysfunction. And so it's something that is really concerning, and I strongly suggest minimizing BPA exposure. It's also been true in monkeys and across the board. It's a potent endocrine disruptor and one that we've got way too much exposure to. There's several places we're being exposed, and one common one is in plastic bottles or food containers. There was a study this fall at Harvard where they took typical Harvard college students and had them carry around with them a water bottle that was either a typical hard plastic one that had BPA or was a stainless steel one for a week at a time. All they did was drink their cold liquids out of BPA-containing bottles. Their own body BPA levels shot up 66% in just a week. So that's one place we're getting it. But another place people don't think about often is canned food. And my colleagues over at Consumer Reports did a detailed analysis of a number of canned foods. And the inner lining often uses this epoxy resin that's made from BPA. And they found in the food itself significant levels of BPA in many of the cans of food. 
I suggest several things. One is any container that we're going to use to serve food in, especially to pregnant women and babies, should be BPA-free. So BPA-free baby bottles, sippy cups, and drinking bottles for moms. And especially you don't want to heat anything in there or use worn bottles that might have that. Another thing that I would suggest is decreasing canned food. For many things, there's good alternatives now. For soups, you can get soup cartons. For most vegetables, you can get frozen vegetables that are at least as nutritious and often tastier in the frozen bag. For many kinds of sauces, you can get glass jars, which is a nicer way to do it. And for the few where the cans are the only way to do it, I still think that having good homemade tomato sauce and things like that are good, so I wouldn't stop doing it, but minimize where we can. Some companies have already started making BPA-free cans, and I'm really glad that that's begun. And industry in general is moving in that direction. The handwriting's on the wall. Well, cans actually started back in the 1800s, and interestingly, the can opener wasn't invented until like 20 years after the can, oddly enough. But the BPA lining didn't come until more recently. The old tin cans were metal. The ways you can identify if something is BPA-free, sometimes it will actually say in the label BPA-free, and that's one good way to do it. Another good way to tell is by picking a company, it's one I work with called Born Free, where everything in the entire line is tested free from all estrogens, not just BPA, but phthalates and batch. So picking and doing it that way is good. Another way you can do it is to look for recycling symbols. And many plastics will have a little number on the bottom. And if the number is one, two, four, or five, those are the good plastics that shouldn't have any BPA or phthalates that would get into the food or liquid that's in there. So 1245 is the way you remember it. And what are the numbers to avoid? And avoid three and six. And seven is the tricky one. Most of the BPA is number seven. And so most of the worst plastics are number seven. But a few of the new ecoplastics are seven also. It's the sort of grab bag. It's, it's other. The other six are each a specific kind of plastic, and seven is the grab bag. So unless seven says that it's BPA-free or estrogen-free, I'd avoid seven. And many times there will be plastics you come across that don't have a number at all, and so you're kind of left guessing on that. And I would not use those to eat or store or serve food in. You're listening to an interview on Michael Senoff's hardtofindseminars.com. What is safe to use to microwave things in? Anytime you microwave food in plastic, a bit of the plastic ends up in the food. And if they're healthy plastics, that may be fine. But I kind of prefer microwaving in glass or ceramic. That's what I do in my home. But if you are going to microwave in a plastic, I would do it in one, two, four, or five. What is going on with the rates of autism in this country and learning disabilities? They're so high, and, you know, there's so much conversation and theories about, you know, is it vaccines, is it diet, is it environment? What's your take on that? I'm very glad you asked about that. Back in the mid-1980s, 1988, autism was diagnosed about 1 in 10,000 kids. And today, autism disease is diagnosed in about 1 in 100 a dramatic change. Um, part of that is that we're diagnosing it better, but a lot of it is a real dramatic increase. Up to one in six kids have a neurologic problem or a learning disability. Really dramatic change. You can see it just going into a classroom, how different it is. That category of disease is just one of a number that are going up very quickly right now. Asthma has quadrupled since 1980. Allergies are down doubling about every five years. Certain kinds of childhood cancer are on the rise cancer in babies is on the rise. ADHD is up 150% in recent years. There's a lot of illnesses that are increasing. To show how dramatic this is, 
back when today's parents were kids, the top-selling prescription medications were antibiotics and more antibiotics. But today, the top-selling prescription medications are asthma meds and allergy meds and ADHD meds. There's not an antibiotic in the top five anymore. It's these chronic illnesses that have become the big players. And with all of the ones that are increasing, including autism, with all of them, it's not that our genetics have changed. It's that our environment has changed. It's either the way we eat, the way we move, or the chemicals that we're exposed to. And those can switch our genes. I mean, the genes are involved, but the change has come from environmental lifestyle issues, which is good. That means there's environmental lifestyle answers. So with the autism question, what is it? I understand that there's a lot of fear that vaccines have been the cause. It first really began to take hold when there was a study 12 years ago about MMR and autism. And just today, that study was expunged from the medical literature because the methods were invalid and the way it was done was dishonest. But that sort of got people really concerned because there's so many shots that are given and kids are upset at that time where you see the autism symptoms. And then it was found that there was a kind of mercury in a lot of the vaccines. And that was thought to be the problem. Then the mercury came out and autism rates kept going up anyway. I don't believe that vaccines are the big problem here. I'm not saying that individual kids, that hasn't been the tipping point for them. I've talked to the parents. I've been convinced that there's cases where that could happen. But by and large, I don't think that's the reason for the big increase. There have been a number of things that when they're looked at, the connection to autism is pretty clear. And that one, every time it's studied, it looks really, really murky. There's not much that pops out. For instance, there's a whole class of pesticides called organophosphates. And they were actually developed in World War II as nerve gas. They're intended to damage the nervous system. And now we use them as bug spray on a bunch of our crops. And they end up getting into our bodies. And typical kids in the United States have levels in their bodies that indicate they've been exposed above the EPA safety limit of this organophosphate. Most kids have more than they should have of it already in their blood. And there was a study in New York City where they measured the levels of one of these pesticides, chlorpyrifos, in the kids, and those at the higher level had dramatically higher rates of autism, autistic-like diseases, pervasive developmental disorder, and ADHD, and it was a straight-line effect. Those kinds of chemicals, I think, are a higher likelihood that so many are exposed to and they're directly neurotoxic. And good news on that, there was a study that was done in Seattle where they took a bunch of kids, typical suburban kids, preschool kids, and they did urine pesticide testing. And sadly, they all had levels that were above the EPA safety limit. But then they switched them to a mostly organic diet. And the kids didn't have to learn to like any new foods at all. If they ate apples last week, they got an organic apple this week. If they had whatever it was, they just did easy switches. And if it wasn't available at their local market, they didn't even do the switch. It's just mostly switched one for one. And within 24 hours, the levels of pesticides had plummeted to almost zero in their urine and stayed there morning and evening. They kept doing urine tests for five days, essentially none detected. But then they put them back on their regular suburban diet, and within 24 hours, it shot right back up to above the EPA safety level. So that means that we're dosing kids across our country every day with neurotoxic pesticides, but it also means that on our next shopping trip, we can make a difference. And I wish this got a lot more attention. But it makes sense that it doesn't because the buildup of this is gradual and slow and you don't really see it coming. Whereas if somebody has a reaction to a vaccine, then it's immediate and there's stories about it. But you're not going to hear stories about this invisible threat. 
Dr. Green, we just so much appreciate you spending time with us today. If people want to check out Feeding Baby Green, Raising Baby Green, what else do you have, Dr. Green? And please come visit me at the website or welcome to follow me on Twitter or connect on Facebook as well. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Great being with you, Chris.